We come this morning to the very last verses in 1 John. We'll say goodbye to 1 John. Next week we'll be in the, the resurrection. I'm kind of leaning towards the, res, the Lazarus. John 11, just trying to stay in John for next week. And in upcoming weeks we'll be in 2 John and 3 John as we round out these short epistles of John. As you're turning there, I just want you to think about the knowledge in the world. The knowledge that we have in the world. You know, the population of our planet is increasing more and more. And with the greater population come greater opportunities and actually greater discoveries. There's been more and more technology seen, developed, and, and prosper. And our knowledge of the world is, is ever-increasing. And in fact, it's ever-increasing at a faster rate than ever before. We have a mechanism for recording all this knowledge. It's called the computer, which helps to amass data and helps to amass knowledge of the realities of the world around us and the people living on the planet and the animals living on the planet. We have a mechanism to share all this knowledge. It's called the Internet that uh, people from all over can learn and grow. But like, like the surface of an expanding balloon, so are the questions that we have about this world and about life. Because the, the greater awareness that we have of the questions even to ask, because greater knowledge brings greater questions. <clears throat> that's, how, that's how it works. Because the more you know about something, the more you discover, the more you don't know. And the more you have particular questions about different areas, about what to ask or think. It works that way in science. Some things that maybe you thought Newton figured out, all mechanics, and that worked. And all of a sudden, Einstein comes along and goes, like, whoa, and then that kind of blows you away. And then maybe some experiments don't work right. Or then you try to figure out how it's all, and, and the questions just go. Newton knew nothing of quarks and protons and neutrons. But we do, and so those questions come. Or with the flyby of the planet Pluto, or the dwarf planet Pluto, come a lot more questions like, how is this? What is this? What? All right, but... Like, what is this surface? What is these things we see? And, you know, perhaps you land someone on there and you can get down and you can find more and more questions. Literature, the same way, when you find out more about people and their backgrounds and why they wrote, just ever-expanding questions we have, whether it's in history or theology, the more you know, the more questions you have, and the more questions you have, the more you realize what you don't know. That there's a lot more that you don't know than you don't know that you don't know. You know? Well, in a world full of questions, there are some things that we know for sure. And this morning, as we come to the end of our exposition of 1 John, John's going to tell us some things that we can be sure about regarding our, our salvation. <clears throat> He's going to give his readers assurance to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and he's going to pour out these assurances strong and hard. And it not all be surprising to us because 1 John was all written about assurance, right? Chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And, and here at the end, he says, I'm writing that you might know you have eternal life. And, and verse 13 really kicks off all these things that he knows. All the things that we know. In fact, there are five clear statements of things that we know and I want you just to listen for those as I begin reading in 1 John chapter 5, 13 through the end of the chapter. So just listen for these five things that he says, we know this, we know this, we know this. 
We've seen some of them before. I'll just review those and then we come into a few that we haven't seen, we haven't talked about yet. Though John has certainly talked about them, his, his epistle is cyclical and the battle I've had is to say the same things over and over and over again and remain interesting. So we'll, we'll try. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence. There's a knowing, knowledge word there. This is what we know. Right, though we have the confidence we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Five things we should know. A couple weeks ago, we looked at chapter 5, verse 13. We know that we have eternal life. We know that we have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. There's the audience. First John's all written to this, and this is my assumption this morning. I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I preach to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That comes to those who believe in Jesus. Now, of course, you know you have eternal life when you pass the three tests, the old tests of 1 John. OLD, the obedience test, the love test, and the doctrine test. And this assurance comes to those who walk in obedience. This assurance comes to those who walk in love. And this assurance comes to those who walk in, in um, the right doctrine of God, that believe in the right historical Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, right? who was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures, who ascended on high and sits at the right hand of, the, of God the Father Almighty, who is waiting to come and judge the living and the dead. That's the true Jesus, the Jesus revealed in Scripture. And if you are walking in obedience, you have love and you have the right doctrine of Christ, then you can know that you have eternal life. Secondly, we looked at this two weeks ago. We know that God answers prayer. Verses 14 and 15. Right? Verse 15 particularly. Or 14. And this is the, the, the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. The promise is vast. Verse 14, we ask whatever we ask according to His will, He hears us. The, the little tiny caveat is according to His will. That whatever God wills that we pray will absolutely come to pass and we know that to be true. So find the promises of God that you know to be true and pray those promises because you know that is the will of God. But we know that He hears and we know that He will grant the request. So as I encouraged you two weeks ago, pray big. As Jesus even, remember, he prayed against the will of God. But he was praying big. He was praying that he might 
get away from the cross. Let this cup pass from me. But yet then accept the results. Submit your will to God. Not what I will, but what thy will. And that's, I think, right there in 1 John. He says, what ask, whatever we ask, if it's according to his will. We know that God answers prayer. Okay, thirdly, and this is where we're going to slow down. We haven't looked at verse 18 yet. Though the truths here we looked at all over 1 John. We know that God protects us. Verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now, this assurance goes back to the entire message of the epistle. It, 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 it goes back to how you identify a genuine believer from a, a false believer. And you identify them by the, the way that they live. As Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. And, and Jesus said, every good tree bears good fruit and every bad tree bears bad tr- fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. Therefore, you'll know them by their fruit. So you, you look at the fruits of someone's life, right? And that's how you can tell what is genuine and true about them. That's exactly what John is saying here in verse 18. The one who genuinely believes in Jesus or the one who's truly been born again will produce good fruit, will walk in righteousness. Or to use John's terminology here in verse 18, he will not keep on sinning. Now, of course, that doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that a believer will never sin. That, that idea contradicts John in, uh, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. He says that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? If, if you're saying, no, I'm walking perfectly, I don't have sin, he says you're deceiving yourself. No, we, we do have sin. We, we do sin. Or, verse 10 of chapter 1, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. John never claimed that a Christian would be free from sin. He never claimed that perfection would be reached. That's what verse 18 is talking about. That it doesn't mean perfection. But on the other side, it doesn't mean nothing. I mean, there, can be other, there are others who say that you just believe in Jesus. doesn't matter what you do. You're okay. We talked about that two weeks ago. And antinomianism, right? Just, just forgetting the law, as long as I believe in Jesus, I'm okay. John doesn't say that. He says the one who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And I, the best way to understand this is not perfection, but pattern. Right? It's not perfection, it's direction. It's, it's the pattern of your life will be one of increasingly shedding sin. Increasingly walking in obedience to God. The pattern of a believer's life will be one with love for others. Uh, This is almost exactly what John said in chapter 3, verse 9. Look look over there. John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The negative is in our text today, right? No, everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. But here it is. Whoever makes a... Verse 9 of chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And then he gives the the reason why. Look at verse 9. It says... Because God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. In other words, right, the emphasis of chapter 3, verse 9 is that, that the one who's born of God cannot keep on sinning because God has so worked to change in him that he's been born of God that he's different. And being different, he's a different tree. He's going to produce different fruit. Talks about just internally what, what God does. And, and that, that's why he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, 
there's a subtle difference between what he says here in chapter 3, verse 9, and what he says in our text this morning. This is what makes the Bible so rich, because it, it looks upon things of, of God and Christ and our, our life and our sanctification and obedience in different ways. And the emphasis of chapter 3, verse 9, is that we act according to our nature. Right? That a, a dog will bark at squirrels, and a cat will chase the mouse, and one born of God won't keep on sinning. But... Chapter 5, verse 18 isn't upon our willing, but chapter 5, verse 18 is about God's working. Look at it there. It says, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but, here's the contrary, or here's, here's why, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And there it is, that God protects him. If you are in Christ this morning, if you know and love Jesus, if you've been born again, if you've been born of God, then you can have this great assurance And John is trying to push us to have this assurance that God is protecting you, that God is keeping you from the evil one. That's what Jesus said, right? I I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The, the, The picture here is, is that God takes His children into his own hands and he protects them and he keeps them and holds them tight so that when another one comes along, so that when the devil comes along and tries to take that precious child away from God, God holds on tight and does not let him go. It's impossible. It simply can't be done. We believe that you can't lose your salvation, but the better question is, right, can God lose a sinner who he saved? The question is us losing our salvation. It's God losing a sinner who's got in his hands who he's protecting. And parents, you know, you know what this is about. Particularly when your children are, are like two or three year, years old, you, you play a little game with them. And so maybe you, you, you take a little toy in your hand. I think I've got a little toy in here. I, I do. Yep, I do. I do. I've got a glow-in-the-dark Tyrannosaurus Rex. Look at that. Or you might have a little candy or something like that. Parents, you know what this is about. And you, and you put that in your hand and you cover it up like that and your child, you know, you're just playing with your child, right? And your, your child wants that because he knows the toy that's in the hand or he knows the candy that, that's there. And so you hold it, right? And you give a little resistance and they've got with all the right and then they, yeah, they get the pinky out. So you're, you're holding it like this, right? And then they, and then they get their ring finger out. But you're still holding on. And they try to pull it, but you still got it. And then they, they pull this finger out, and then they finally pull it out. And you're like, wow, you're so strong. And they get to play with their little toy. Well, you know full well, if you wanted to keep that toy in your hand, there's no way your two or three-year-old is going to take that from your hand. Right? I mean, when that pinky goes out, if you really tried, you know, that pinky can go back and you can just spend all your time just working on that pinky. <laughs> but with God, the difference is far greater with God and the devil. That the comparison between a, an adult and a three-year-old doesn't even compare. It's more like an, an infant who can barely do anything. God holds believers in His hand. He protects them. They cannot be pried away. That's what verse 18 says. He who was born of God protects Him and the evil one does not 
touch him. So, you know, maybe even in the illustration here, he's in his hand, and the evil one can't even pull the pinky away to get at the tail. Can't, can't even touch him is the idea here. It's a fact of our salvation that those of us who have been born of God are safe and secure in the, in the hands of God. That's not to say that there are, are difficulties and trials that come. Think about Job. Well, you, you think about Job and God incited Satan to, hey, look at Job. And he says, well, he only blessed you because he's right, because you've blessed him. He says, well, look, have at it, right? But don't touch him, right? And they said, well, don't kill him. So obviously this touching metaphor, right? Obviously Satan touched Job. Okay, so you've got to understand that metaphor in light of the balance of Scripture. But there was Satan, but God had sovereign control over what was taking place in Job's life for sure. Paul had that thorn in the flesh. God could have removed it, but he didn't. It means that things are hard and, and difficult. And the messenger of Satan, it could have been Satan. Was, was But God was protecting Saul through that whole time. Peter, Satan has asked permission right, to sift you like wheat. And Jesus says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now there's some failings there. Ultimately, Christ kept him. Trials come in our lives. James 1, we should consider it all joy when these trials come. Oftentimes they come with the, either the disciplining hand of God or the purifying hand of God. It's through many tribulations we'll enter the kingdom of God. So this not, not touching us doesn't mean that we're going to live a worry-free, pain-free, difficulty-free life. But it means that God is going to sovereignly protect us and guide us over. And the promise of 1 Corinthians 10.13 is that there's no temptation that has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. But He's going to provide the way of escape with that temptation. I remember meeting up with a long lost Christian friend. Hadn't seen him in years. And uh, just was wondering how he was doing. I said, how are you doing? And here's what he said. He says, the Lord has kept me. It's a great response. That's a great illustration of here. right? God has protected me. He's not allowed the evil one to touch me. Might be a, a, a like response. I love what Richard Sibb says. This is Old English. I just want to read it in the Old English as he had it. He wrote some 500 years ago. When the child falleth not, it's not from the mother's holding the child. I'm sorry. It is from the mother's holding the child and not from the child holding the mother. So it is God's holding of us, knowing of us, embracing of us, and justifying us that maketh the state firm and not ours. In other words, we are saying, right? And you all know that, right? You have little, little children on your shoulder. It's not because the children hang on so tight to you that they don't fall. It's that you hang on so tight to them that they don't fall. And so likewise, the picture here, it's, it's not that we don't keep on sinning because we're holding on so well. It's that God protects us. And we know that, that God protects us. Well, let's move on. The, uh, I think this is the, the fourth thing that we know. Right? We, we know that we have eternal life. We know that God answers prayer. We know that God protects us. And fourth, we know that we are from God. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this is a similar thought to verse 18. It's the thought of that, that we belong to God. 
that, that we are from God. We are, as the NIV translates this, we are His children. Right? We are so much from God that we are, as it is, His children. As children of God, we're different than the world. We, we live in a different domain. We live unto a different king. We live under a different power. And that's the emphasis of verse 19 here is the power, right? We're from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And, and the implication that is, right? We are from God. We live according to the power of God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, one of the constant points of emphasis that John has brought up over and over in this epistle is there are two types of people in the world. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. Look over back at chapter 3, verse 10. We see the same concept. The children of God and the children of the devil. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, the children of the devil follow the ways of the devil and the children of God follow the ways of God. The ways of God are righteousness and love and the ways of the devil are just opposite to that, are wickedness and hate. And that's all there is. There are, there are two types of people in this world. Those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are in the kingdom of Satan. When Augustine wrote his city of God, it was the battle between the city of God and the city of man. Bunyan wrote a book um, called Holy War. The battle for man's soul. The, the great battle between God and Diabolos. There are two. And, and these are the people. You're in the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of God. And what happens is there are people who transfer from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Colossians 1, verse 13 speaks about that. So you're one or the other, or you're in the process of being transferred from one to the other. But that's all there is. There are, it's like a, it's like a, a baseball team or a baseball game. You've got you got one team here and you got one team here. And there's nobody who's like, well, I'm, I'm kind of on this team, but I'm kind of on this team. No, you're either on this team or you're on that team. It's a little bit like, like politics. Politics is, uh, is something which makes totally complex issues come down to a decision of two different positions. Now, it's not always that, but there's Republican, Democrat, or there is either abortion is legal or it's not legal. Or it's legal in this circumstance or it's not legal in this circumstance. Or, you know, whatever issue is, is coming about. It's legal to have your own gun or it's not legal to have your own gun. And, and all these things are like, oh, you know, we might want to sit a fence. Well, sometimes, no, it's got to come down. You're either one side or the other. Either you're going to attack the nation or you're not. You can't, like, send half a troop like someone. Okay, I want you to go, well, maybe, right? You're either going to war or you're staying home. Maybe you're staging for war, but you can't be like, well, I'm, I'm kind of in the war, but I'm kind of not in the... It's just two, two kingdoms, two peoples. And that's what John is getting at here, that we are of God. And, and you ought to know going through First John, if you pass the Old Test, say, yes, I'm from God. And there's that power out there. It's the power of Satan. And that's the world. And the world is power, but I'm here. I'm under the power of God. Now beware, because the ways of the devil can be cloaked in religion. So it's not just world and church, okay? Don't, don't think about it that way. I remember that was one of my great errors growing up, that I used to think when Jesus talked about how, not, how many will say to me, Lord, Lord, enter the king, you will, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom. 
even though they've done all these things, right? He said, get away from me. I never knew you. And I always used to think that was the church and then the world out there, all the other religions. But if you look at that, in Matthew chapter 7, it's these people who are professing Jesus. They're professing Christ. And so what it is, is it's either you're, you're with Christ or you're not. And that can come into the church. That can come into religion. It can be cloaked in religion. You remember Jesus, when he battled the Pharisees, who prided themselves in their religion. Jesus said, you're your father the devil. And your will is to do the... Your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And these righteous Pharisees on the outside actually walked in the ways of wickedness. They murdered Jesus. And murdering him demonstrated what sort of children they were. But that's not such the case with the children of God. We'll walk in righteousness. We'll walk in, in love. And in John's epistles, this, this division, this battle is nowhere made clear. In chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. He says, don't love this world. It's got its power of its own. Don't, don't be there. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, right? If you're a lover of the world, God's love is not in you. For all that's in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. So you've got this world which is passing away. Here you've got God which is abiding forever. That's the eternal life idea. And here you've got this world which is filled with all these passions and desires. And if you're pursuing and loving that, you cannot be loving the Father. Because the ways of the world are the desires of the flesh. They're the desires of the eyes. They're the, the pride of life, which one translation says the boastful pride of life, which I, I think is talking about achievements and accomplishments and possessions and wealth and everything else that the world has to offer. It's glamour and, and fame, reputation. But that's not the ways of the children of God. And, and John couldn't even be clearer, right? If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. There's just, there's just one or the other. So you either love the world and are controlled by its power, or you love God and are controlled by His power and love. And for those of us who are controlled by God, and we know that, that, that God is the one who convicts us, He empowers us to walk in His righteousness and walk in His ways, then, then we can have assurance and we can have confidence. I just encourage you to embrace the promise of verse 19. Everything that John's been leading up to, it's this. Know that you're from God. And know that the power of the world is impotent over you. Let's move on to the fifth and last assurance. It comes here in verse 20. We have eternal life. We know that God answers prayer. We know that God protects us. We know that we're from God. And we know that we have understanding. And this basically says this. Verse, verse 20 is saying, by, by the way, summing up all of 1 John. Verse 20 is saying this. Listen, we know these things to be true. We know this to be true. We're not, we're not putting forth a lie. We know it's true. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. And has given us understanding so that we might know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven, come to earth to dwell with us. We've seen Him. We've touched Him. We've heard Him. He's real. And the reason why He came was to make the Father known to us. He made known His ways, His truth, and His salvation. And He's given us understanding so that we might know who's Him who is true. So, so God gives us this understanding so that we might know who's true. And so she share the Gospel with people and they seem to not understand. Realize it's not God who's given them understanding. 
So pray that God would give them understanding. They might know Him who is true, but for us who believe, we know that our understanding comes from God because God has given us understanding so that we might know Him who is true. And when we know Him who is true, we, we abide in Him. We are in Him who is true. We abide in Him. We abide in Jesus. We abide in His teaching. We abide in His love. John talks a lot about abiding. Right? Whoever abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. And as we abide in Him, that brings us into eternal life, which is the the true God. He is the true God and eternal life, as it says at the end of verse 20. And we can know these things. And I just encourage you, church family, stand firm in these things that we know that this is true. Um, I forget how this came up, but I was talking uh, my children, particularly my son, about denying Jesus or, or whatever, deceiving so you might live or like being in a foreign country and, you know, someone asks for something of you should you well in other countries if you're not truthful it might save your life and so those kind of discussions and things i said david i said if anyone tells you well you deny jesus and i won't shoot you what should you do and he kind of struggled a little bit he hasn't thought through that issue and i said never deny jesus never deny jesus say yes i know that this is true and take the bullet to the brain and be in the presence of christ instantly that's the thrust here, verse 20. Know that these things are true and stand firm and confident. Don't, don't, don't waver. And John says this about the confidence against the backdrop of false teachers who denied Christ, who denied that Jesus came in the flesh, who denied that Jesus is the Christ. And to these things he says, who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son, 1 John 2.22. And John wrote, Verse 20 here in chapter 5, verse 20, against the backdrop of false professors. Those who claimed to know Jesus, but were living lives contrary to that. They, they, they weren't loving the brethren. They weren't keeping the commands of God. And yet all, all the while they're saying, yes, I love Jesus. And to this, John said, chapter 1, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You, you can't say one thing and live another and hold that saying right. Or he said in chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments a liar, and the truth is not in him. Chapter 2, verse 15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if someone says, I love the Father, but then they love the world, it doesn't, it doesn't match. And so against the backdrop of these false professors, he says, you know this. Know this to be true. I'm not deceitful in any way. You don't need to be deceitful in any way. You know that God has come, and he's given you understanding so that you might know him who is true. He writes this against the backdrop of those who left the fellowship of God's people, claiming they knew better. Oh, we know, we've been enlightened and we know, come our way. This is the challenge of many college professors, many high school teachers perhaps. But the higher up in education you get, the more free people are to, hey, come, come with me, come with me. I'm enlightened. And to these things, John says, no, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So if they're out, it means they're not in. If they're pulling you away, it means that they don't know these things. And throughout the entire epistle, John's bringing us back to this solid truth that we might know the things, the genuine true of Jesus, that we might stand firm in these things. I think the call of these verses, right, things we know, these are things we know that things we should stand firm in. Things that we are like convinced about. These are like truths that we will die for. That we have eternal life. Right? That God does answer prayer. Right? That, that God does protect us. 
that we are on God's side, we are from God, and that God is the one who's given us understanding. And I just say this in light of the world in which there's much confusion today. Because there is a lot of confusion. There are many who say, well, we can't really know about the things eternal. We can't really know about the things spiritual. Because how can we even trust the Bible? How, how, can we, how can we know? This is a book just written by man. and How can we know that? But we can say, no, we know that Jesus really lived and died and he raised from the dead. The historical teaching of that just shows that he is certainly true and what is true, this is what revealed and this is, we stand on this. No, we can know that this is from God. On the religious side, you have people who claim to know Jesus who actually know a little, know a little, only a little about him. Right? I mean, just, just the hoi polloi out there. I mean, many people, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian, right? And you ask them about Jesus and they don't, they don't know a lot. In my alma mater, sad to say, secular college, um, I, I received a call one time and um, kind of an alumni, hey, you want to give and that, that sort of thing. And so I was talking to this, this girl and, and I talked about what, what really transpired in my life. I gave my testimony in, in short glimpse and, and I talked about how many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I said, Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. And I asked her, I said, do, do you know what the Sermon on the Mount is? And she said, uh, no, never heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Have you heard of Jesus? Yeah, I heard about Jesus. Well, this, this is only the most famous thing that Jesus ever said. And so here was someone who knew a little bit about it. She wasn't claiming to follow Jesus, but just the ignorance out there is, is immense. But there are people who would say, yeah, I know Jesus, don't know little about him, or claim to believe in Jesus, that know not even enough to know what to believe. Well, I believe. Well, you believe what? Well, I don't know. I mean, they don't even know any creed or any... I, I, I know that Christ died for my sins. Don't even know that. Many people are out there like that. There are many people who claim to follow Jesus who actually, when you drill down, aren't following Him much at all. And to all these errors and to all this confusion, John just writes, listen, know, know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we might know Him who is true. And we're in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So church family, know these things for certain, that Jesus has come, He's given us understanding, and He is the true God, and the true God will lead us to eternal life. And, you know, people can give us all types of counsel, all types of advice, and yet there's none better than what Jesus gave. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So let's know that. Let's be con- Firmed about that, let's trust in Him. And that's where First John could very easily end. But there's one more thing. He says in verse 21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, this verse seems to like come out of nowhere. I mean, um, John has never mentioned idolatry or idols in all of his epistle. So this is like a, a new topic he's bringing up. And now finally, in this last little verse, the very last word, keep yourselves from idols. I, I picture it like this. Now, it's certainly not like this, okay? But kind of how I picture it is that, right, the, the, the deadline's coming and the guy, the mailman is coming and in order to get it out. He's got to get it out now. Otherwise, next, next time mail comes in those years, is like, like what, two weeks later or something like that. And he's writing down frantically and he's about to hand it off. And, and he brings, oh, 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 one more thing. Little children, keep yourself some right. Okay, there you go. It's kind of how I, how I kind of picture this because it seems so disjointed. It seems, 
it seems so not to fit. Now, it certainly does fit, and any problem we have about fitting is, is our problem. It's not the Bible's problem, okay? I'm not, but I'm just saying that there's kind of the disconnect of what it, it seems like. I mean, if, if at the end of the epistle, he's just pounding these things we know, right? You may know that you have eternal life. Know that you have the prayer request you've asked of him. Verse 18, Know that one born of God won't keep on sinning. Know that we're from God. Verse 20, know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. And then, guard yourself from idols. Uh, it would fit better if he said, we know that idols are wrong, so keep from them. I'd like to keep up this assurance theme, but he doesn't. He simply writes, in affection, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about idols. Idolatry is worthy of an entire sermon. I mean, verse 21, if you take this and, che- and tease it out, it is certainly huge because the Old Testament, and I've heard people even say, theologians talk about, the Old Testament is really a battle between idolatry and God worship. Right? Worshiping idols or worshiping the true God. And, and you can tease that out for sure. That is, that is certainly true. Because um, by the time you, you look at all the, the gods that they did worship, Abraham's family even came from a family of idol makers. And then, and then Moses, even while he's up on the mountain, they're making idols. And then when they go in the land, God says, well, don't pursue their other idols. Don't intermarry with them because then you're going to worship their idols. But go into tear down the ashram and tear down the Baals, right, and, and, and rip them down. But Israel still continued in their idolatrous ways. And then lest we think in, in our days that we have rid ourselves of idols, I just remind you of that wildly popular show called American Idol. Now, I've not watched the show. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with putting singers up there and choosing the best one. But that word is so good that this is our American idol. This is a picture of what idolatry looks like in America. The the fame and and prestige. But in America, I think there are many, many more American idols that we have that we might not even realize. Whether that's comfort. Whether that's ease whether that is some of the pleasures that we have that the world doesn't have. Um, Colossians 2, verse 5, counsels us against, warns us, commands us against covetousness. And then Paul says, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry anytime we want things. This world, anytime we covet them or earnestly, that's idolatry. And as John says here, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, there's lots of interpretation trying to understand what, what John was saying here about idols, what exactly he's referring to. I think we get the gist. Anything that puts itself up in deference to God. And I think here's where the connect is. So as much as I say it is disconnected, I think it comes down to this, is that verse 20 is talking about God is the true God. He is the, the true God, eternal life. He's the one who came, believe, and, and trust in this true one. As opposed to the idols, which are false and, weakless and, and weak and worthless and are no good. So avoid those idols, because idols are, are prohibited. And I just I trust the Spirit of God as, as idols here in this text is kind of ambiguous what it means, whether it, whether it means the... Um, different ideologies or, or the actual wood and stone or whether it means the, the food sacrifice to idols or, or pagan culture or um, any un, 
any untrue representations of God or, or just whatever it means. The various, I got 10 different definitions down here I could, could read you. But whatever it means, it's, it's not defined in John. And so I'm not going to define it deeply for all of you. Just trust, trust that the Spirit of God will work right now. Keep yourselves from idols. If something's an idol, walk far from that, far away from it. And there's one balance to that. It's keeping yourself untrue, what you know is right. So let's pray. Father, I would pray that you would God, dig these assurances, these Christian certainties into our hearts and our minds. God, that we might know these things that are true, that Jesus often spoke about how he is the, the truth, how he says the Pharisees lied, but he is the one who told the truth. God, I, I pray we would trust him in all these things, that he is a, a God who answers prayer. God, that he is a, a God who gives eternal life, who protects us, and we're on his side. So, Father, help us, O oh God, to be on his side. If, if through First John we have failed to have assurance of salvation, God, I don't know God, what else I can do. God, so I pray that you would grant us all assurance of our salvation. This is where we are. That we might be bold. The righteous are bold as a lion, the proverb says. And so, God, we might be bold in boldly proclaiming the gospel and boldly standing for where we are. Let us not be ashamed of Jesus, God, because we know him is true. God, let us not doubt because we know that whatever doubts and whatever is not from faith is sin. God, so help us believe, help us trust in, in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.